Welcome to Season 6 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? Want to expand your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Today's guest is Dr. Bonnie Stahoviak, professor, dean, and host of the wildly popular Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. The reason we thought Bonnie would be a great guest is because of her dedication to faculty development and enthusiastically talking about teaching in higher education on her podcast. Her speech and tone are engaging and it makes you feel like you're in the room with her. In the episode, she discusses everything from being an early adopter in the education podcast space to her experience teaching a personal leadership and productivity course. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are both thrilled about today's episode of the podcast. So this season, we're talking to educators and faculty developers who maybe they write, maybe they speak, but they're really in the space about teaching practices and education. And um, our guests, they've authored uh, popular textbooks and um, and other texts about college teaching. They might uh, host popular podcasts about college teaching. In all of these spaces, they're discussing trends and best practices and evidence-based practices in education and higher education, probably more specifically. Um, They're all from different places in the university. Um, They might be in STEM or education, psych, business. Um, They might be working in uh, faculty development centers or centers for teaching and learning. Um, They're going to share teaching strategies that can be applied uh, more broadly. And so we're really excited about getting into these conversations. And today we're joined by someone that we're we're fanning all over by uh, Dr. Bonnie Sohoviak. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much. I will say, so I don't know if y'all watch Frasier, but Frasier, whenever anybody called in, they'd always say like long time listener, first time caller. I feel like it's the reverse because I've, Bonnie, I've listened to your podcast for for years and gleaned so many great insights. So to have you here today on our podcast, like Dan said, we are really fan personing over here to make sure we're gender inclusive. We are fan personing because we've gleaned so many things. And, and our hope is that we turn some of our listeners who may not already be your listeners on because you share so many critical tips for teaching um, in, in this space that are, that are useful and easily applicable. And so excited to have you today. But for those of us, for those of our, our audience that may not be listening already, can you like quickly share like a few things about you that may not be listed in like your bio on your website? Yeah, I think it's listed there, but I don't think, I I always think about if we just stripped away the parts of our identities that show up on a business card, although ironically, the parts of the identity I'm about to mention do show up there. But if we took away titles and we took away all of that, I really feel like I am a teacher and a learner at heart. That is what captivates my imagination. That is what I think about so often, even sitting at the breakfast table this morning with the kids, I was thinking about how in many ways they've already sort of started, they've expanded my own current knowledge about space and science and things like that. And I was sort of picturing our son being, you know, older and maybe, you know, teaching me calculus someday. So I I definitely think a lot about those two things. They just fill my mind, fill my heart. And I, feel like they fill my hands in the terms of what gives my work and my life the most sense of meaning and significance. Love that. And, you know, you you were definitely an early adopter in the podcast space. And so, you know, we we, we chatted just briefly before before we started recording. Uh, You mentioned that you had 
gotten started in, in 2014, which is which is fantastic. And I'd love for you to, to kind of to share if you were be filling that niche early on, were you maybe first to the space of practitioner forward, like faculty development based podcasts? I mean, where did the idea come from for the teaching in higher ed podcast, other than teaching your stuffed animals, as you shared uh, on your website when you were younger? But where did the idea come from and um, getting to the point where you are today with the podcast? My husband and I met when we were getting our master's degrees and we got our master's degrees in organizational leadership. I thought at first, I didn't have a specific opening at my company, but I thought he'd be a good person to know because he's such a brilliant writer and communicator as far as a teacher and presenter. And so it was not romance that was in my mind at first, but it was just this intriguing person. And then all of that changed. And that's not what this podcast episode is about necessarily. But I think it's fascinating when you meet someone and you have that shared vocabulary. And in fact, we took a teams class, an organizational teams class at that time. And that was really when things started to change from this would be an interesting work colleague potentially to like, "Mm, I'm not sure I ever want to work with this person exactly in the way I was originally thinking. And and so just to have those conversations about leadership, I remember early on, we joke because it was a team's class. And now we've got this great team that's our family and all of that. And he really, he started a podcast, we, we fast forward many years, we got our doctorates, and then he started a podcast about leadership. And, you know, he said these, these You've liked having conversations about leadership, but what you like to share about and and have conversations about even more is teaching. And you mentioned, Dan, that I, I always try to be careful because I feel like none of us, I mean, not none of us. So few of us ever actually have original thought or original ideas, like there's almost nothing new under the sun. So there certainly were podcasts at the time, but it tended to be one of two general categories. One would be there would be the chronicles of the world or inside higher eds of the world that really have a lot of focused conversation around policy, which I was not as interested in having conversations about that, which is to say not at all usually interested in that. And then the other category were the types of podcasts that really tried to apply to everyone under the sun. So it's it's parents of people who are in college, it's students who are in college, it's also professors and it's also the staff. And and I think anytime you try to write, create, if you try to do too many things for (laughs) too many people, it's hard to get any sort of resonance to really connect with people where they are podcasting such an intimate medium. And when you, you were sharing Lauren earlier, just about feeling like, you know, me, and I certainly know what that feels like. These people are sometimes quite literally in your ears going about your life with you. And to me, we have to really think about who it is that we're having the conversation with, not just the person we're interviewing, but also welcoming so many others into those conversations and thinking about who those people are, what they're struggling with, and and what kinds of questions they might have if they were there sitting around the, the coffee table, if you will, having those conversations. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, no, and, and totally agree with you. I mean, it's, it's, you, we do just like with, you know, a talk show host or whatever, it's like they, it's like, oh, they're family. They're on, they're in the house, they're on the TV, you know, they're in your ear or in the car with you. I, I totally, totally can, can relate to that.
it's interesting because, uh, you know, something you just said, Bonnie, about, you know, the podcast, when you started, there were two broad groups and, you know, what I'd love to hear is kind of like, who, who do you see in your group or in your listeners? Like for us, we look at leadership educators who are teaching mostly in higher education, but we know that, that K through 12 can glean from what we're, from the conversations we're having. We're also looking at people who want more conversational and less like speaking, uh, like speaking engagement, as well as people who want to know what's happening and how they can apply it in their space. And when I listen to your podcast, I think a lot of the benefit, at least I get, um, and I feel like because I'm a listener, I can I can jump in that pool. But a lot of the things I get is it you help me stay on top of what's happening. And then you give me really good strategies. The people you're talking to, there's always a strategy or a uh, some kind of suggestion that I can take and, and look and see how does it fit into the courses that I'm teaching? And so is, is that kind of what you're going for or? Oh, absolutely. It's something that I will say that I have struggled with and I don't know that there will be a time when I ever don't. And that is that I, I, don't, I hate to call it imposter syndrome because that just feels so cliche, but I mean, the sense of when I allow myself to feel intimidated by another person, I mean, the first, the first person I can remember so vividly, Anissa Ramirez came on fairly early in the podcast and she has a PhD in material science. And I had to Google material science. I like, I didn't even have a, like a third grader understanding of what on earth is that? I don't even know what that means. What, what is that? And, and I, I remember just feeling so embarrassed to talk to people and think like, oh my gosh, they're going to figure out. And I'm thinking, how could any person actually know all of the disciplines that are out there? That's an unreasonable expectation to have of any single human being. But I still do feel that tension of just, oh gosh, this feels very vulnerable. It feels very uncomfortable to have conversations. And at any moment you could be found out. <laughs> <laughs> that you know so little. And so to me, it's just a constant discipline of saying, what is the purpose of why you do this? Is it because you want to show how smart you are? Because that's not a game you'll ever win. So what if what your purpose is, is to be curious and humble? What if your purpose is to try to to uncover things that someone with more of a childlike mind might be able to uncover. And how much more are we as leaders, as teachers, when we think about things without trying to prove how smart we are or how much we know, to be able to have people feel welcome in a space, to feel like they belong and they matter. And that, that when I can do that well, when I can go, I mean, how, in fact, I, I was just listening to an episode of my podcast this morning. I do listen to all of them as they come out and try to keep getting better at what I do. And we were talking about Satsuma tangerines. And I, and I, I was laughing at myself because I'm on the thing flubbering a little bit like, well, I'm sure there's many different varieties of Satsuma tangerines. And I, and I was, I was like shaking my head at myself, like you sound so silly right now, but I'm thinking who could think that you're going to know about different types of fruit varieties. In addition to having my doctorate is in leadership. They didn't teach us about tangerine varieties and that particular part of my schooling. So trying to just recognize that, yeah, you're not going to know everything, but how fun is that when you hear another person who, yeah, sometimes says something 
that kind of sounds silly if you know about tangerines, but that that's all going to be okay. And um, that's, so that's really been more of the space of where I have tried to ground and root myself. It's not easy though. I, I feel like, you know, our, our culture many times, not just in academia, but in organizations in general, really reward people who sound like they know what they're talking about and who are so self-assured and confident and decisive. And we don't necessarily always reward or look after the curious mind, the childlike mind, the one who admits that they may be in an, talking about an area that they don't know a lot about. No, it's it's so interesting. I feel like we're we've got one foot in the curiosity realm, as as you as you definitely mentioned, because we'll we'll reach out to guests that we they've been recommended to us, or we we really don't know anything about them other than what is more forward facing, you know, and that we're just fascinated by experiences that they've had, or or the the context of which they're teaching leadership or in facilitating leadership learning in. And then I think in the other half, the other foot is in people that are dear friends and or people that we know we're just we want to get their their voice out to our our world, you know, our discipline and like, hey, this person is doing great work. Like you should know that they're doing this great work. And we want to make sure that that they that they have a, an audience and that they're not doing this this work in a vacuum. And so it's 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 rewarding in both of those aspects because we're, you know, we're paying it forward for those that have, you know, that uh, were kind to us and during our careers, but then also being able to have that intelligent curiosity around different things. And this this season too, we're, we're super excited um, about the, the types of folks that we're having on because pedagogy is a huge part of, of what we talk about. And, and anytime we get a chance to, to have anybody who's been doing that, um, you know, for a good part of their career is, is just, it's like being in the candy store, you know? And so I'm curious. So in your one of your more recent podcasts, and I don't know how long you've been you've been teaching this class, but you know, one of the things that we now we're kind of learning that we have in common and that you definitely have in common with many of our guests is your terminal degree is actually in leadership and organizational leadership, and then your your master's too. And that that actually would make you kind of an outlier in our field. Um, only about a quarter of of uh, faculty that are teaching leadership at the university level actually have a terminal degree in uh, leadership or related field. It's all over the place, which is which is really interesting. And so you've been teaching this personal leadership course. I think it has a longer name than that, right? Like personal leadership and, and branding and or, or what's it called? Personal leadership and productivity. Personal leadership and creativity. Um, so how, when and how did you start teaching that? And like, what's, and I guess that's the first question. And then like, next would be like, what's your favorite learning activity or assignment in that class? Yeah, the the full title of the course is Personal Leadership and Productivity. Okay. And how it came about was that I actually, many moons ago, more than 10 years ago, there was a former colleague who wasn't able to teach an elective course. And it was one of those elective courses, special topics in such and such. And it was different every time that person had taught it. And I came in at the very last minute. You probably know how this goes. And so I, I, I quickly had to put together, what do I think that students who come through, it's a, in a business school. So students who come through business might not get and then go out into the you know, into a professional job, perhaps their first you know, professional job for many of them. And then what are they missing? And a lot of that was around so much of when students are in school, we're sort of conditioning them in many cases, especially with more traditional pedagogy of 
cramming, of letting other people manage your time and managing your time fairly precisely. Read this chapter, take this quiz, write this paper. And I have such a vivid memory of a, of a student many moons ago graduating and telling me that her biggest surprise, she started in this professional job and her manager delegated a project to her and she stayed up until three o'clock in the morning to do it and then came in the next day and said, I have it done. And the the manager's wait. This was supposed to be over weeks and months. This was not <laughs> just a complete disconnect of understanding projects that that how that how do they get created and then how do we manage those things over time and how do we really manage our lives outside of a syllabus and a work schedule, which for many of them would have been you know this many hours and very precise instructions on what kinds of duties were going to happen there, and it came about where they the class now they read the book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People with Stephen Covey, which I really like that book a lot. I will say candidly, it does leave some elements out. I think there is, it's like a paradox. There's the idea that we have so much, so much control over our response to what happens to us. And of course, if you've read that book, he tells the story of Viktor Frankl in the concentration camps and how he decided, you know, he noticed this pattern of people who were able to make it out of there, that they had a vision of themselves for beyond their current circumstances. I will say candidly, our, our school and the time I've been there almost 20 years, it went from being a predominantly white institution to today has uh, is a um, has many more students of color than than there are white students. And sometimes it feels a little bit flat to say like, back up, you know, you can do this. Like, so, so I'm, I'm constantly kind of wrestling with, you know, how do you do that? Because I am, because I don't want to take that away from them because so many of them that resonates with them, just this idea of the power to choose. And yet I kind of wish I had something to kind of come back and question some of these ideas and break them down. Anyway, the other, the other book that they read is uh, another white man, you might notice, is uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done. And that book has been tremendously helpful for me personally. It's something that I practice those approaches on a daily basis and very helpful for them as they navigate this is what school looked like for me. And then this is what life might look like when I do have greater control and autonomy over creating these projects and initiatives in a, in a work context. You've been fortunate to have so many great guests on, on your podcast that are in the teaching and learning space. Are there any you know, tips uh, or tricks or, or what have you that you know, some of your guests have, have shared and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm taking that and I'm putting it in my class next semester. Like, could you, did any come to mind that, that you've been able to really make that, you know, that either you just take it and, and it, use it just as it was described or you kind of take it and, and morph it into something that works for your own, uh, for your own needs? Yeah, I think that one of the cautions I would have for anyone, including myself, is it is rarely a thing where it's I listen to a show and then I put an idea into practice. I mean, I guess the first one that comes to mind, if you want a precise answer to that, is I had um, Dan Levy, Levy on from Harvard, and he talked about teaching effectively on Zoom. And one of the practices is that you could have the shared Google Slides that your different groups are 
having in their breakout sessions and they're, they're consolidating their answers and that's pretty powerful. But most of the time it's over time, my learning about uh, an effective practice such as retrieval practice is something that I've had many episodes about and tried in many different ways to get people to do retrieval practice. This is by the way, for people not familiar with what retrieval practices traditionally in higher education, we've subscribed to the banking model of education where we just pour information into students' heads. And then we ask them to regurgitate that information at precise points in time through a paper or a test. And retrieval practice is where we instead spend more of the teaching time inviting people to retrieve that knowledge from their minds. And that retrieval practice self-reports say, I don't learn that way. I don't like that. So self-reports, we can't always listen to, but what actually shows up both in the lab and in a more uh, real world context is that actually the learning is deeper and sustained well beyond any testing measures that may happen, but that, yeah, it is harder. That's part of why it works because it creates those greater neural connections in our brains for that information. And as uh, one of the researchers I got to interview of many about retrieval practices out of UCLA, Robert Bjork, and he has this wonderful quote, forgetting is the friend of learning and how when we forget, it's painful, we don't like it because it's a type of failure, but actually if we're presented then with what the right information is, we're so much more likely to remember it. And I got to stand at the University of Houston in front of hundreds of people and forget his name. <laughs> And I'll tell you, that didn't happen again after that. I got, you see how fast I came up with that man's name? I interviewed him many, many months ago. But yeah, I mean, it, forgetting really is the friend of learning. It really is, even though as painful as it can be to have that either private humiliation of not getting it right on some sort of a polling device or something like that, or in a very public way, standing in front of hundreds of people. Wow. You, you seem like you have such interesting stories about how like you're kind of like bringing these real life moments into your teaching practice and then sharing them through your podcast. Like, I, let me tell you how I forgot, but let me tell you the science behind how important that is to learning. Like what a, what a beautiful experience. Um, I do want to go back to something you said about the, the productivity class. Like, and it's, it's interesting when you said it, I love productivity and I'm thinking about all of the, the things I read. And one book that I picked up is Emergent Strategy by um, Adrian Marie Brown. And, and she's a, a woman of color who talks about like change and how personally we can navigate change effectively and, and make it so that we're actually productive and, and doing things with our space. And it made me think like, you know, I, I didn't know, I was, you know, kind of reading some of the other like pieces that you said, but it was in the last two years that I started really critically looking at the things I assigned and then doing some digging and looking at the voices that were, were shared. And while I wasn't pulling those out, I was offering more options and said, you know, if, if this is part of your identity, I, I got a little something for you. But if not, there's also, you can find value in all of these voices. And it's really about taking away the strategies that work for you. And that's become like an underlying thing in my teaching practice. I'm not going to teach you to memorize. I, I don't, for most of my classes have quizzes just for that reason. You just said like memorization doesn't really help. It's really about repeatedly applying and building your knowledge and then consciously making a decision about what works for you because we're all kind of kind of different and you know I said I've, I've been successful if 
I've introduced something, you understand it, and then you're able to critique it or question it, but then figure out what from that you can use. And it seems like that's more of a healthy teaching practice. Um, I also think too, we're, we're people, so we're growing. And it's a beautiful thing when you hear someone say, here's how I've changed in my teaching approach or my learning approach because of the things that have changed outside of us. You know, in the last two years, it's become more critical to think about all of those voices. Um, and before it, it just wasn't there as strongly. And so it's like, you know, great, we're all now doing it. So, you know, kind of welcome. So it's nice to hear that, that you feel that way. Uh, I'm right there in that boat with you. So you have company. This is such a great example of what I was talking about earlier, where when we, when we're trying to live up to some unrealistic ideal. I'm supposed to know all the things. <laughs> and I'm also supposed to be a perfectly culturally responsive teacher. And there's, that's just a pass or fail grade. When we, when we look at the world in that way, we limit our growth. The other thing that you're bringing up, Lauren, is on my podcast recently. Sadly, it was a failed episode that they did reschedule. So this will, we will get to get revived, but emergent strategy was recommended. And what I love about this, I can't keep up with every book. I mean, on every single week, there's generally speaking, three or four books that get recommended in addition to the people are often authors themselves. I could never keep up with that kind of reading. But you start to hear about the same book come up in multiple contexts. And then you just helped me connect it to I just admitted here in a public space about a weakness that I see. And my willingness to do that. No, I am not perfect. No, I have not been able to create as um represent I've not I mean what this is called is decolonizing one's syllabus I have not successfully done that for all of my classes but when I admit that I'm not where I want to be and when I do that in public spaces not only do I get to benefit from that but other people listening get to benefit from that when we're humble and we all just can admit no I'm not where I want to be yet it's yeah. <laughs> wonderful and by the way the they they read a little section of emergent strategy on that uh, failed podcast episode that is going to be re-recorded and oh my goodness I just instantly I was oh I got to read that book that's so yeah. incredible so thank you for helping me connect that with uh, you're welcome I'm listening oh I listen to them anyway but I can't wait to hear the the revised version um I'll also share too and I don't know if Dan and I talked about this but there are a bunch of identity-based planner like I found a planner like um the planner for the Jewish mother. And then there, there's a whole product line of, of um, black women planners, because when they started doing stickers, the stickers were of like white women. And so they started a whole product line for black women with all different kinds of stickers. And I'm like, you know, it's amazing that something as little as stickers creates this new product line. But then when you look at them, there's also some, like you talked about culturally responsive. There are also some, some things that, um, folks in different identities recognize that are associated with their culture. And so, I, I, so I'm with you sharing it openly and then hearing something that kind of helps you solve your problem or, or your issue or address, you know, kind of the things you want to change is so super helpful. And, and I think that's kind of the, the idea of podcasting, you know, like making sure you're exchanging ideas that people can leave with something that they can apply to their life. It's really nice too, when you build a community, because then people, it, it can be that conversation. Now it's not a, it's not a constant conversation back and forth, but when you really touch someone's heart or you really uh, expand their mind, their imagination in some way, how beautiful to get to hear from them and see the work that you're doing and, and how it's playing out in people's lives.
Yeah, I wanted to comment, but it's interesting that, you know, you, you know, you mentioned, you talked a little bit about the imposter syndrome piece and, and being able to, oh my gosh, here I am in a public forum saying, I don't know, or I'd like to learn more about that. Or, you know, there's still some mystery. And I think about how important that's become to the identity of a leadership educator, because we're so much, and, and we've seen this in the literature, which is, which is not robust, it's, it's growing, but about people that, that do this work. And when we have, we have some, there was new directions uh, and student leadership that came out a few years ago about becoming and being a leadership educator. I know that there's, and there's some great work about faculty identity out there in the literature as well. Uh, one of the things that that we, uh, I guess, is kind of like a blessing and a curse for leadership educators is that we are kind of set with this responsibility of like modeling the way and like kind of like being, you know, like, okay, if we're going to teach leadership, like we got to do some of this stuff ourselves. Like we have to say, you know, we have to be vulnerable. We have to um, talk about some of the mistakes, some of the, you know, teachable moments that we've experienced and things of, things of that nature. Um, and I think that being out there and being willing to name, like, like you said, hey, I haven't decolonized my syllabus it, you know, and, or, Hey, you know, there are things that when I did this research project, you know, I, I wish that my population had been more diverse and I'm willing to own that. Or, Hey, you know, I know today we're going to talk about something that is going to uh, cross racial, cultural boundaries. But if we don't have this conversation, we're going to lose a lot more than, than if we didn't, am I saying that right? If we don't have the, if we, if we do have this conversation, you know, it's much more powerful than if we don't have this conversation, willing to take that risk. Um, and it's really, it's, I guess it's heartwarming to hear you to hear you say that, I wonder, you know, where, where do you think that that approach came from, or like, how how does that kind of naturally emerge for you? Yeah, I wanted to to go back and thank you for helping us revisit my use of imposter syndrome. <laughs> I think the reason I'm hesitating doing that is because a lot of authors and thinkers out there are challenging us to stop putting it back on ourselves, mm -hmm. because what that does is it it doesn't acknowledge the systemic factors in why, why we might feel ashamed, why we might not feel like we can show up in all of our fullness of selves. And so that there was someone who recently recommended herself for the podcast. And it was, it was, I hate to describe it as adorable, but I can't think of any other word because she was both recommending herself, but also apologizing for having done so. <laughs> like, like, like that this was a terrible thing. And I thought, like, this happens all the time. It's just usually it's white men, <laughs> but, but welcome, you know, the water's fine. And we had some back and forth. And I sent her an article just about, about this whole idea of imposter syndrome and the ways in which, you know, we don't acknowledge. I was thinking also, as you were sharing, Dan, that I think too many times we tend to go more those individualistic routes. So we set up debates. I don't know if that shows up much in leadership education, but it certainly shows up in other disciplines often. And rather than having a debate, which has by its very nature, a winner and a loser, what if we were to instead have more of those vulnerable conversations and creating those kinds of spaces and communities where we can admit our weaknesses and be vulnerable. And, but I mean, so much of academic culture in general is counter to that and, and you don't see it. I mean, it's, it's um, you write that research proposal prior to it getting published 
And so we don't see those proposals that got rejected and we don't even see the process that happened. It's not very transparent uh, to people, the failures that occurred and the struggles and that vulnerability. We don't show our vulnerability in our scholarship and we don't show our vulnerability often in the spaces in which we share those things. We, we tend to, I love the title of that book, Emergent Strategy, as opposed to, I have this all figured out and <laughs> let me tell you the three ways to create you know, you know what I mean? There's such a difference there. Um, what is emerging versus what we are pretending we have all figured out. And so often people just don't have it figured out as much as our ways that we communicate would lead people to believe. Otherwise, it would have been titled Seven Emergent Strategies, you know, or Seven Emerging Strategies. No, it's interesting that you really identified like something really unique about teaching leadership. And, and I, I don't know if this comes out in, the, in your personal leadership and productivity course, or, or if you maybe you, if you see it more in that class and some, for some of the other classes that, that you teach. I mean, while, while we do oftentimes, gosh, it's, I'm kind of in a gray area here. It's like we, from some of the research that, that I've done, even, even personally on um, teaching habits of leadership educators, like debates do show up, but dialogue and discussion are our signature pedagogies in the discipline. You know, it's all about talking. Oftentimes it is about being vulnerable because it's, you're sharing experiences from your own good boss. You had bad boss. You had good leadership experience, good followership experience and poor and, you know, and challenges and decision-making and, and, and putting yourself out there to get feedback from your peers, get feedback from your, from your faculty member. And it's, it's less, uh, much, much less, even, even in, in, you know, the like scholarship tracks of some of our big professional conferences, like the epistemological, like, like uh, bitterness of, of going in this direction or this philosophy, like we don't see that as much in our, in our discipline. And it's just interesting that you really like that's, that seems to be a really clear distinction that you've observed. Is that, is that accurate from the people that you've talked to and kind of the cross-disciplinary kind of experiences that you've had? Yeah. When we talk about dialogue and discussion, I'm, I just have the sense that way too many times we're actually not talking about dialogue and discussion. Uh, let's take this to an online space. How many of our quote unquote discussion boards are nothing more than small papers? You needs to be 400 words and you can't just say, uh, great job, you have to elaborate. And it's so precise and so narrow in its focus and nothing resembling the clumsiness and beauty of an actual discussion among people. And then even there, I'm thinking about, okay, well, what about those kinds of discussions that take place in a more traditional classroom format? Even those are privileging people who are more extroverted, people who think aloud and do that well and can instantly come up with what their reaction Action to a question is going to be. And we not often enough have things like quiet spaces to reflect and um, ways of voices coming into the room that aren't as confident, that aren't as ready and prepared to, you know, be the first one to raise their hands. Uh, and, and so many institutions now are trying to help with some of that, even just evaluations where you might record yourself while you're teaching, and then you can analyze the types of questions that you're asking. And then you can go back and watch a recording of yourself and see which students you called on, 
and and then what kinds of ways did they answer it and, and you know how inclusive is your teaching in that way so that's one way that we can evaluate that and then some faculty have come up with even more of a rigorous way of doing this for larger classes people who have TAs where there's a software there's one called Teachly I mentioned Dan Levy earlier from Harvard and they've got uh, the Teachly software that if you had a a TA in there, they could be marking down who's getting called on and then bringing that to the attention of the professor of, hey, these people are being left out and helping them be able to be more inclusive in their teaching. But of course, that takes intentionality to decide that those voices matter and to decide that having real dialogue, real discussion to meet lots of different types of learners' needs is, is what we want. So yeah, I I, I definitely see that in the leadership field, that at least we're not only staying with debates, that that's not predominantly what's happening. I'm just afraid that too often dialogue and discussion is actually not what I would really call dialogue and discussion in a space outside of an academic environment. I, I agree completely. I have a love-hate relationship with discussion boards simply because it's, you're great, and this is great, and wonderful. And, I, and you know, and the, the depth you want isn't there. And as a faculty member, you don't think maybe it's your question. You, oh, it's got to be, it's got to be the students. And, and, but, but then I've been a student and I hate discussion boards too. I know I hope none of my teacher, my past instructors are listening. I hate them because, you know, it, it doesn't feel like the, the deep learning or the deep interaction that, that you're hoping to incite. Um, with that said, I'm constantly testing out different prompts for my discussion boards. Hopefully, you know, I can land on one that I, that, that feels good and feels comfortable, but you're right. That, that thinking, that critical thinking or that deep thinking is, is just not always there um, unless you have, you know, the right prompt or a really strong community. So I, I feel like that's one of, it's always been a teaching goal to like improve those discussion boards. But again, um, like you said, that dialogue and discussion isn't always happening in the way that you want it. Something that's emerging for me in all of this that that I have not sought out if there's a body of scholarship around this, but there, there's this idea of what's often called a community of inquiry or, or where you might have seen these diagrams where there's the interaction that happens between the professor and then there's the interaction that happens between the students and all that. And then, of course, in open education, even the interaction that happens to the community. And I'm getting a little bit concerned as I both walk alongside colleagues who are struggling with this and then my also my experimentation in myself of addressing issues of diversity for example or discrimination in my business ethics class i'm also teaching mike caulfield's lens of how to it's called sift by the way that's an acronym for how to sift through and, and determine what may be true or or accurate on the internet and teaching students how to read that these are things that should not be controversial, but sadly are. And so what I've been experimenting a little bit with and talking with colleagues is I just feel like sometimes we switch way too quick to discussion. We don't even have a common shared set of vocabulary to discuss things. And because we're supposed to have them discuss, whether that's in a class or in a discussion board, what have you. And, and so, so what I've just been playing around with, and, and, and both in my thought and in my practice, is actual dialogue between professor and student. 
not just student to professor, I turned something in, but actually me feeding back. And so when it comes to discrimination, and, and for example, I bring up terminologies like what are microaggressions and, and what is implicit bias, these are things that should not be controversial, but sadly in the place where I teach are, please come at me before you go, <laughs> go at it clumsily in, in that group dynamic. And I'm just finding that to be a little bit safer where I'm, I'm actually so far, I mean, it's so early for me. I'm not ha even having people be as clumsy because I feel like they really can be vulnerable and go, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. And these are words I, I don't encounter. I never even realized I did that to people. And but now I, I watched this short video and I'm realizing, oh, I think I might be doing this. That's way more easy to reveal to me than it would be to their entire class with all of the possible outcomes that they may have. I mean, people don't even like to get a question wrong that has a right or wrong answer. And most of these things don't have right or wrong answers. So I, I'm feeling a little bit like we collectively as educators have, have embraced the benefit of the group discussion because we know we're supposed to without, and then just trying to plop on potentially controversial things right in the middle. It's, um, it's, I'm just doing a lot of thinking about that lately and, and trying, it's, it's, like I said, it's working relatively well for me so far in my early experimentation of let's, let's do this one-on-one. -on -one. And I do use video tools to do that so they can hear my tone of voice and they don't have to put things in my words that aren't actually there. They can hear my care for them and my appreciation for them willing to be vulnerable and share times when they feel like they may have inflicted in this particular case, microaggressions on other people without realizing it. And then, yeah, we can, we can then go and maybe have a conversation as a class, but, but yeah. What great ideas too. And I don't, I don't know if you know this, but you've hit right on my research. Like I look at faculty student interaction and there's, there's two practices and one of them talks about communication and there's a, a large, like growing body of literature on how in your interaction, how communication can be misconstrued or misplaced, especially in the, the, the area we're in right now with the pandemic. And so like, I found this term and I love it, but it, it lovingly love it because it makes it easy to explain what's happening, but there's social contingencies. So what's going on outside affects you as a faculty member. And that influences how you communicate to your students, but students don't necessarily see you as a human. They see you as this instructor with power and as a, a normative leader based on how they've experienced teaching and how they've identified leaders. And so there's all the there are all these assumptions that they put on you from their experience that you don't know because you just kind of show up as who you are as an instructor. And so being careful about your language, adding video so they can see your nonverbals are all good practices. Um, however, we then hear the horror stories about like clips of faculty being put on YouTube and screenshots of, of part of the context of your text messages being shown on Instagram, as well as you can't share with the world. You can't get out there and defend yourself against the world because there's this whole thing like FERPA and HIPAA, depending on what you're teaching. Right. And so it makes this like really complicated, messy space. However, when it works well, um, it, it's the difference between a student continuing to persist as well as the difference between a student developing skills they need to communicate when they get to that professional space after college. And so it's, it's almost sometimes worth the risk to kind of fumble through those mistakes to, to, to help 
our students really develop and and meet their academic goals and and be just like you know good citizens you know going back to kind of the purpose of higher education um but i'm gonna stop there because we could talk to you for two more hours and we all know from good data that people are not going to listen to a three-hour podcast from us all in one sitting and so i'm just going to end with is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you'd like to share with, with our, our audience? I just want to talk to both of you, you know, in another context. So be watching your emails is all I can say. <laughs> this has been such a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. And Lauren, I'm really want to learn more about your research. And Dan, it's been such a pleasure to get to know you and to be invited into this community. I My mind is just brimming with ideas and I've been taking notes the whole time we've been talking and look forward to just exploring more of the ideas that we've had the conversation about. I'm so honored that you would want to include me in this conversation and just I'm a kid in a candy store as far as so many of the things that you brought up. So just thank you for your generosity. Yeah, no, you're welcome. And thank you so much. We're honored to, ha to have you as a guest. So um, yeah, grateful for your time, your leadership, and definitely wish you the best of luck as you continue your work in this area and, and with, with your podcast. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Remember, you can download all our episodes on all available podcast platforms. And when you go, please make sure you rate us five stars, as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. That's right, Lauren. We also invite you to interact with us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod. That's L-E-A-D-E-D-U-C-A-T-O-R-P-O-D. And on LinkedIn by searching for the Leadership Educator Podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn by name. And on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And a wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies now at the University of South Carolina. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our listeners. During the season, you will hear episodes featuring International Leadership Association members working globally to drive leadership education. Visit ilaglobalnetwork.org slash podcast for more information and to join the association. And finally, this podcast would not be possible without our chief partner, the Association of Leadership Educators. Please check out the ALE and all it has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you will listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. Hey.